Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Tonight, straight from the source, Odessa is on edge for a fourth evening as sirens were sounding just moments ago in the southern port city that has been shaken by days of Russian attacks. We'll take you there live. Also, the grand jury, considering charging Donald Trump with January 6th crimes, met in secrecy again today. But we now have intel about what they asked one of his personal aides, direct conversations about Trump himself. Plus, a conspiracy theorist taking center stage, and it went exactly as you might expect, off the rails. RFK Jr. denying he said what we've heard him say, but Democrats rolled the tape. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, the city of Odessa is staring down another attack. Just moments ago, air raid sirens were blaring as the Ukrainian city on the Black Sea is bracing for more. This would be the fourth straight night of Russian attacks in Odessa, a city already on edge after being bombarded. Russia says it is retaliating for Ukraine's attack on a critical bridge to Crimea. And Ukraine says that Moscow has used almost 70 missiles and 90 drones in just four days. President Zelensky says that some were shot down, but he warned that his country's air defense, as it stands right now, can't protect the entire Ukrainian sky. Now, key infrastructure is in ruins, including major grain terminals like this one that you see here, burned to the ground. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live in Odessa, where he has been all week. Alex, what are you seeing and hearing tonight? Well, Caitlin, it was very startling to hear that air raid siren go off just a a few minutes ago because of how on edge this city is, Uh, of course, bracing for a potential fourth night uh, of strikes. We did hear that air raid siren go off. Um, It has since ended for the time being. There was a warning uh, from the Ukrainian military that there was a missile threat. Now, whether those missiles were indeed fired and landed elsewhere and we didn't hear them, uh, whether that was a false alarm, that we don't know. We will certainly learn that in the coming hours. But the, the, the fact that this city is so on edge, so anxious, really speaks uh, to an assumption, a fair assumption, that these, these, these civilians uh, are fearing the worst because over the past few days they really have seen the worst uh, that has been fired at this city since the beginning of the war. Uh, Caitlin, you talked about those 70 missiles fired over the course of the past few days. Last night alone, we saw four different types of cruise missiles being fired from uh, long-range supersonic strategic bombers. We saw drones being fired uh, at this city, not just last night, but over the last three nights. You could hear them buzzing right over the city. Ukraine says that Russia is lashing out 
hitting Odessa because this is the most famous port city in the country and R Russia has just pulled out of that grain deal. Uh, it, it is retribution. It is a message, Ukraine says. Uh, I would also argue that Russia does not only want to destroy different infrastructure around the country, they're also looking to terrorize the population. So when you launch missiles, uh, when you cause those air raid sirens to go off, you're waking people up, you're sending them into the basement, you're scaring them. That is effectively terrorizing the population of a city like Odessa and all across the country. Now, Caitlin, Russia is saying that they have been striking uh, Odessa because uh, of that attack by Ukraine earlier this week on the Kerch Bridge. Russia saying that they would continue to retaliate for that brazen attack, whether they will continue to do so tonight, uh, we are waiting to see. Caitlin? Yeah, and Alex, I should note that we've just learned from the Ukrainian Air Force saying that that air raid missile alert, the threat has, has ended. We'll see, of course, how the night develops. I know it's kind of in touch and go where you are. Uh, the other thing that we know that Ukraine is doing is they've started using those cluster bombs that the U.S. is providing to them. What's your sense of whether or not that is going to help them uh, in this counteroffensive that is, that is happening as Russia is bombarding Odessa? Yeah, that's a real debate, Caitlin. What everyone agrees on is that Ukraine is really running low on artillery rounds. This is an artillery fight in this counteroffensive. Uh, Russia has an enormous number of artillery rounds. Ukraine needs them. And the reason that was given by the Biden administration for giving these extremely controversial um, cluster munitions is because uh, Ukraine simply needs more artillery rounds. Whether they will be effective, I spoke to uh, a general last week who said that they could have a radical impact on the battlefield. Uh, some analysts say that uh, you really need the right kind of target, uh, say large groupings of Russian soldiers, large groupings of, of Russian equipment uh, and machinery to target with those cluster munitions. But what everyone agrees on is that this is plugging a gap. This is making up for that shortage of those critical artillery rounds. Caitlin. We'll see what develops tonight. Alex Marquardt, stay safe. Thank you. And joining me now is the former defense secretary under former President Donald Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, thank you for being here tonight. When you see what Russia hey, is doing, targeting these grain ports, civilian infrastructure, you know, now even opening the door to attacks on civilian ships, does it seem like a new level of desperation to you or what do you read into this? It does seem like a, a new level of terror. Clearly, it is payback, and they've said so for the attack on the Kerch Bridge, which was also, a, a, of course, a personal insult to Putin, who, who uh, opened that bridge a few years ago. So it's that. Uh, they're trying to destroy the grain, at least a million tons of grain there, which, which is uh, also horrific because it's going to cause uh, um, you know, food insecurity issues around the world, particularly in Africa. And uh, there's some speculation that they're doing that to raise grain prices globally, which, of course, would happen. And that would help uh, Russian grain exports. So there's a, a lot of factors to play here. Also, the drones that, that struck the Kerch Bridge were uh, launched from Odessa. So that's another factor. And I'd say probably a third one is the fact that uh, this, this, this attack on Odessa uh, distracts the Russian people from the ongoing drama with Prigozhin and Wagner and everything that else is happening in the upper ranks of the Russian military. Yeah, which we now know the Wagner leader is, is surfaced in Belarus the first time since that mutiny happened last month. But uh, Secretary Esper, with the Ukrainian forces, what they are essentially struggling with is to beat back these attacks. You mentioned the, the drone attacks there because they don't have advanced air defense systems in, in the southern part of the country where Odessa is. You know, what we were told is that they were only able to destroy five out of the 19 cruise missiles that were launched last night. I mean, what do, what do they need to fight this? Do you think they'll get it? 
Yeah, look, I think a preponderance of the air defense assets are probably a key protecting the capital where they should be. Uh, those are difficult to move. Uh, the other complicating factor is that Odessa is a port city within direct line of attack of uh, from Crimea to its southeast. Uh, and so there, you're not able to prepare a layered defense like you can do with uh, with uh, Kiev, which is further in the interior of the country. So, look, they're going to have to quickly move air defense assets down as close as they can to protect uh, Odessa and then maybe put some aircraft up in the skies as well to help out. But, of course, you know, the, the whole aircraft issue gets into the, the whole matter of why we didn't provide um, Ukraine with F-16 sooner. They would have helped in this situation some and certainly would have helped uh, would help in the counteroffensive also. Yeah, I know you've been advocating for that. I also want to get your response to something that your former boss, former President Donald Trump, said today about Ukraine. The notion that we would even consider admitting Ukraine into NATO at this time is completely unhinged. The last thing that this incompetent administration should be doing is risking war with a nuclear-armed Russia. I should note, of course, President Biden has said he doesn't believe that Ukraine is ready to join NATO yet. They've pushed that until after the war is over. But do you have a concern that if Trump is reelected, he would try to pull the United States out of NATO? I've said so in the past. I've had I would have concern about his intentions with a variety of alliances, pulling troops out of Japan, out of Korea and certainly um, out of NATO. I think any move on NATO would probably begin with a cutting off the supply of arms and ammunition and materiel to Ukraine as well. So I think that would precipitate that. But look, the the issue about Ukraine, Ukraine should be in NATO. Uh, Nobody expected that to happen now. I actually think they should have been given a better uh, better plan, a better timeline, uh, clearer steps. And uh, that was the, the disappointment I had coming out of what was an otherwise very uh, successful summit in uh, Vilnius, Lithuania. Yeah, that was last week where President Biden was, of course. Uh, Another thing, you know, you have talked about this. You've said that Trump was a threat to democracy in light of what happened on January 6th. Now, of course, he has gotten a target letter. He appears to be on the verge of being indicted in that investigation, potentially. Do you believe that, that charges would be appropriate here? Well, I haven't studied the charges. I'm not a lawyer, but uh, look, there, there, there are some basic principles of uh, American democracy. And one is nobody is above the law. Uh, two, there should be accountability. And number three is, uh, look, the president is uh, innocent till proven guilty. So I think this legal process needs to play itself out. And of course, for President Trump, he's dealing with, with what, two or three uh, of these types of in- in- inquiries, indictments now. So um, uh, he's, he's, I hope he has a good legal team. You wrote in your book that before the election, you were worried about Trump trying to use the military to hang on to power if he lost that election, something that obviously was later actually suggested by outside advisors in a meeting that we know Jack Smith is asking about. I mean, what does that say to you that that people who were suggesting something like that were invited into the Oval Office and now it's the subject, it's at least part of this investigation? Of course, I was fired on November 9th, a week after the election. And my big concern at the end of October of that year and, and leading up to the election was uh, what would the president do uh, with the military, uh, whether he won or lost? Would he deploy the National Guard, for example, or maybe even active duty troops against protesters? Um, and so I write about this in my memoir, of course, the concerns I had, a, a private meeting I had with the head of the National Guard to discuss these contingencies and so forth and so on. But the other stuff that was far more dramatic, of course, didn't happen until December when it was, I think, uh, late December 
when President Trump had a meeting with uh, General Flynn, uh, retired General Flynn and others, and they talked about seizing ballot boxes. That, of course, is very alarming. And uh, I, I suspect that's where the uh, would be a critical element of this January 6th investigation. I'm curious, you've said you don't think he is fit for office, that he shouldn't be back in office. How do you plan to handle the Republican primary? Are you going to endorse another candidate here? Uh, no, I, I don't plan on endorsing anybody. I said that I, I wouldn't support Donald Trump. I don't think he's fit for office because he puts himself first. And I think anybody running for office should put the country first. And they should ab- abide by their oath and do a number of other things. Look, I, there's a, a, a crowd of about 12 or so Republican candidates beyond Trump. I think at least half of them are very credible. A- any of those six or so could beat President Biden if they become the nominee. And what I'm looking for, and, and I'm willing to assist any one of them, uh, help them. Uh, I'm looking for somebody who puts the country first, who will abide by their oath, who will advance traditional Republican policy objectives, and uh, who will bring the Republican Party together, grow the party, and win elections. You have to win elections, and, and Donald Trump has not been able to win elections, whether they are House, Senate, or White House. And so that's what Republicans need to do. Just... Amazing for me. I mean, I know that those are that's your view on this. We've obviously talked many times, Secretary Esper, but uh, to hear someone who was uh, the pick, Pentagon chief for a uh, now candidate for president saying that you would willingly help his challengers who are running against him uh, just speaks to the moment that we're in, I think. But uh, Secretary Esper, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Have a good evening. Ahead, as a deadline looms, as we mentioned, for Donald Trump's lawyers to answer an offer from the special counsel, Jack Smith, we are now learning what one of his personal aides was asked about by the grand jury today. And he's accused of bigotry and hate and outlandish conspiracies. But today, RFK Jr. raised his right hand and swore this. Why I'm under oath in my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. You can hear him say it. He's a notorious anti-vaxxer. He also said he was not anti-vaccine. You've got to hear it to believe it. We'll show you the highlights and speak to someone who is in that hearing next. Special counsel Jack Smith gave Donald Trump four days to decide if he wanted to come and testify before a grand jury that is investigating January 6th. Well, I should note, today is day four. It is nearly midnight. For now, the former president is making his case on TV and asking why he wasn't indicted sooner. I hear they want to indict me on this one. And why didn't they do it two years ago? Why didn't they do it like when it would would have been, you know, timely? I should note, we don't know that Trump is going to be indicted. Obviously, it is widely speculated, but we wait to see what Jack Smith's team does. Meanwhile, we have just learned that the witness who went in front of the grand jury today, Will Russell, he was a personal aide to Trump in the White House. He followed him to Mar-a-Lago. He was there on January the 6th. He was asked a series of questions, we are told today, about his interactions with Trump before he left the White House. Will Russell's attorney later said that prosecutors were asking his client questions that he believed may impede on executive privilege. Let's discuss with former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree and the former Chief Assistant to the Manhattan DA, Karen Agnifilo. Karen, I'll start with you. Will Russell being asked about what his attorney, Stan Woodward, who I should note is also representing several other people in Trump's orbit, said impeded on executive privilege. I mean, what does that signal to you? 
Well, first of all, the executive privilege is a privilege that means the executive branch can't share information, doesn't have to share information with the other two branches, legislative branch or ju- judicial branch. And and it's interesting because Jack Smith, as part of the Department of Justice, is within the executive branch. And P.S., the current president holds it, right? So Joe Biden, and he has said there is no executive privilege issue here. So bringing, this is an argument that that Trump and his world has brought up many, 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 many times, and it doesn't hold, it doesn't stick. And what it tells me is that Jack Smith wants to know what was Trump saying? What were the conversations? What were his words? And Tom, when you were talking about Will Russell, you know, he's not this household name, but he was backstage the morning of January 6th at the Ellipse. You can see him here. He's obviously to Trump's right. I mean, he has gone before the grand jury three times now. What would warrant three appearances? Well, a lot of times prosecutors will ask a witness questions and they'll go talk to other witnesses and they'll get some ideas for additional questions. So they'll have to circle back with the additional, the first witness. I think what's going on here, Caitlin, is that Jack Smith is clearly intent on nailing down what President Trump's mindset was, both on January 6th and the days leading up to it. From what we've heard, the charges he's contemplating, a lot of them will turn on the president, the former president's intent. Did he have an intent to corrupt the election? Did he, in fact, know he had lost the election, was trying to overturn it? And in order to confirm the president's intent, Jack Smith needs to get witness testimony from people who are with the president, who understand what he knew and who understand what was on his mind on that day. I'm glad you brought up his mindset because also, Karen, we were looking at what Will Russell has said publicly. He told an Ohio newspaper last year just how close he was with Trump. He said, whenever Trump left the White House, I was with him by his side, briefing him every step of the way. And Tom, you know, mentions there Trump's mindset. We know he's spoken, the, the special counsel has talked to people, Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks. Do you think Will Russell is someone who could who could offer a similar level on, on Trump's mindset? It certainly sounds like it. It sounds like he would, if not be a part of the conversations, he would at least be around while the conversations were happening. He was literally in the room where it happened. And so he would be able to say and, and talk about things that Trump was saying to other people, things that Trump knew, things that Trump was intending to do, et cetera. And of course, you know, we mentioned he was there on January 6th. Also, Cassidy Hutchinson was there, who, uh, you know, became incredibly well known after she testified about what she heard Trump say before that rally. His response was to say they can march to the Capitol from from the ellipse. Something to the effect of take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse, take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. I mean, Tom, when you talk about what what insight Will Russell can, can offer, do you believe it's it's something similar to that potentially? Of course, without knowing what he testified, given this is a secret grand jury. That would be my best guess, Caitlin. And look, prosecutors will tell you that often the most effective evidence you can present against a criminal defendant is his own words. And that's one reason why I think Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony was so devastating, because she could report what President Trump actually said. It's obviously something that's difficult to deny if you're a defendant, that you're being confronted with your own words. They illustrate your mindset. They illustrate what you intended to do. And they illustrate what your state of knowledge was on that day. And so, look, if Russell was a a player here, if he was present when all these things were happening, when these conversations were occurring, he could very well prove to be an absolutely critical witness in whatever indictment may be forthcoming here. Yeah. And the last time Trump got a target letter, Karen, I mean, it was about three weeks, I believe, before he was indicted. 
Do you expect a similar timeline here if he got the indictment, the target letter on Sunday? When do you think we could see an indictment? Well, if you recall, the prior target letter, Trump wanted to meet with Merrick Garland and then Jack Smith, and he wanted witnesses. You know, he, he, there, there was all sorts of things that were going on during that three-week period. Here, I think they limited it and said, you have four days to decide whether you want to testify in the grand jury. And if he doesn't testify, I think we could see an indictment as soon as tomorrow or in the next week or so. We'll see what that looks like. Of course, we know they had until today to respond. We don't believe they have. Uh, Karen Agnifilo, Tom Dupree, thank you both so much. What do you get when you invite a full-fledged conspiracy theorist and presidential candidate to testify on Capitol Hill? I have never been an anti-vax. You are slandering me incorrectly, Congressman. What you are saying is a lie. Robert F. Kennedy on Capitol Hill. A wild hearing on free speech. Are Republicans regretting that invite? We'll talk about it next. Sometimes it seems like every day is a spectacle on Capitol Hill, but today it really seemed to hit a new level. House Republicans invited noted conspiracy theorist and longshot Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to testify. He spoke in front of a Republican-created committee that is focused on the weaponization of the federal government. He was there to talk about censorship. That was the premise of this entire hearing. But as soon as RFK Jr. was under oath... He started denying reality. Why I'm under oath in my entire life, I have never uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. Okay, that was what he said today. A week ago at a dinner, Kennedy was recorded saying this. COVID-19 is targeted to attack uh, Caucasians and and, uh, and uh, black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, uh, and Chinese. Democrat Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was on the committee, confronted Kennedy about his own words. Mr. Kennedy, do you think it was easy for Jewish people to escape systematic slaughter of Nazis, yes or no? Absolutely not. Do you think it was just as hard to wear a mask during COVID as it was to hide under floorboards or false walls so you weren't murdered or dragged to a concentration camp? Of course not. That's okay. ridiculous. But that's a comparison that you made. I did Mr. not Kennedy, make that the comparison. Taken- it was quite a hearing. And I should note, Kennedy was not the only witness who was invited. Democrats invited the civil rights activist Maya Wiley there today. Her testimony at points turned into a rebuttal of RFK Jr., and she joins me now. I mean, I just what was it even, even like to be inside that hearing room today? You know, it was just a deeply sad and disturbing experience. And sad because, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. was once a very different person, uh, one who did pay attention to science, particularly environmental science. Uh, and the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. we saw today, which we've been seeing repeatedly, is one who has not met a conspiracy theory, apparently. He hasn't advanced, including uh, anti-Semitic tropes uh, and, frankly, anti-black stereotypes, uh, which came out in some of the questioning in the hearing. But the thing that was particularly disturbing is the the discussion about whether or not he was censored and his own 
statements that asserting that he was, even when he had tweets with deep mis and disinformation that were never removed. That was even in the record in the Biden versus Missouri case that, uh, I mean, Missouri versus Biden case, which, which essentially claimed that the president and the White House had been coercing social platforms to take down and censor speech. And, you know, his statements about that, uh, some of them were actually factually inaccurate. And I should note, at these hearings, you, you see witnesses, when they come, they deliver a pre-written opening statement. They've got a few moments uh, to speak before they're questioned by members of Congress. You scrapped yours to directly address what had been happening in those opening statements. For, for our viewers who didn't catch the hearing today, I want to play that moment. When you make a statement that suggests that based on race, based on religion, based on anything other than facts that you may have somehow not been targeted, but other racial groups have, that by definition feeds into something very dangerous in this country. Did you feel like you had a responsibility to correct the record? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I liked my prepared statement. I thought it was a good one. There was no possible way to be a person who lives in this country, to be a mother of children, to be someone who lives in a community and cares about people. And so many Americans I know, so many Americans know there's so much more we agree on than disagree on. And we also know that we're being torn apart. We're being torn apart by conspiracy theories, but also people who would suggest that we should be torn apart. And it was just one of those moments, um, sadly, where I was thinking, these are our elected representatives. These hearings are supposed to be opportunities to investigate questions we really should be asking ourselves as a country, like whether or not we are enabling rampant lies that are racist, that are anti-Semitic, that are anti-Asian, that have by document and research contributed to a rise in hate violence. I wanted to remind people that this is the week that Robert Bowers, who murdered, massacred 11 Jews in their place of worship, who on social media repeatedly, repeatedly said anti-Semitic things. People are dead. And we have to have that conversation in this country, and we have to talk about and face how we stop it. And that was what was so critical for me, was to just have a moment where we said, let's talk about what's real. Let's talk about what we have to solve, and let's stop spreading the very things that are endangering us, driving division, and costing people lives. And it, it felt like watching it, it it completely missed the point of what the hearing was supposed to be, which you talked about just a moment ago. You know, this thorny question of misinformation, whether or not it's protected by the First Amendment, what's removed, what's not, the role that social media companies play in this. I mean, that's not the takeaway coming out of this hearing today. It's the comments that RFK Jr. made and your response and lawmakers' response to those comments. You know, it, it, one of the things that's so frustrating is there was really no opportunity to have a discussion about what is censorship. 
has it happened? Uh, you know, we forget that when people go in a private company's social media platform, they agree to terms of use. And in fact, in fact, in so many interest in instances, the, these companies are not even paying attention to their own terms of service, and they have cut by 80% in the case of Twitter their trust and safety employees that are there to help keep the user experience safe and to protect this societal interest. They do it because it is their choice, it is their policy, and that is not censorship under our laws, nor are we having a real honest conversation about two things, two things if we want to talk about censorship, is this very committee has actually gone after and targeted researchers looking into mis and disinformation and using the power of government to, frankly, try to get them to self-censor. That, that is something that's also problematic, and it's happening by the very people who are claiming that these social media companies who are being asked to enforce their policies are engaging in censorship. That's a scary conversation given what we're facing in this country. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait for the next hearing. Maya Wiley, thank you for joining me tonight. Ahead. Did the Speaker of the House make a secret promise to Donald Trump to get back in his good graces after he questioned his strength as a presidential candidate? What Kevin McCarthy is saying tonight. Tonight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy denying that he promised to erase Donald Trump's two impeachments from the congressional record. Mr. Speaker, did you promise Trump that you would have an expungement vote? No. The backstory to that soundbite, which I should note, this was first reported by Politico. McCarthy called Trump last month to apologize, apparently, after he questioned in an interview whether or not Trump was really the strongest Republican candidate in 2024. In that subsequent call, we are told that Trump and McCarthy were speaking as McCarthy backed an effort to expunge Trump's two impeachments. And essentially, it would just be symbolic. It wouldn't actually obviously erase the fact that Trump was impeached twice. But we are told that McCarthy did not promise to bring that to the House floor for a vote, which is probably a good thing because members of his own conference don't think it's a good idea. Some House Republicans pouring cold water on the prospect of doing so just today. Mike Lawler saying, quote, I really don't see the purpose. Garrett Graves, I am not going to take a position. Andy Harris said, I'm concentrating on appropriations. Chip Roy said this is a new body, so I'd say onward. And Tim Burchett of Tennessee I don't care about that. It doesn't amount to anything. Here to discuss, Van Jones, a former Obama administration official, and Scott Jennings, who was a special assistant to President George W. Bush. I mean, Scott, those, a lot of those names that I just read are Republicans who are in districts that President Biden won and voting on something that's basically meaningless, just, just symbolic and would send a message, doesn't necessarily help their campaigns. Yeah, and you might also get into a situation where it fails. I mean, what if you put something like that on the floor and you, and you don't expunge it? Uh, I talked to one House member today. He said, well, maybe the first one might get expunged. I'm not sure about the second one. I mean, think about the optics of this are all bad. And so... Uh, and then you tack on the political, uh, you know, empirical political data we have, which is when voters are thinking a lot about Donald Trump and the things he did and what he represents, we lose elections, just like we did in the midterm. So all these people 
want to look forward, these votes would be looking backward. And going into a presidential cycle, that's not really the disposition the party should take. Do you think a lot of this has to do, though, with uh, McCarthy not endorsing Trump yet in 2024? Yeah, I mean, he, he, it's about staying in the good graces. I mean, his, his speakership... Uh, to some degree, is is owed to Donald Trump. They've been close political allies. I'm not surprised the reporting is true that he floated it. But sometimes you have to protect people from their own bad ideas. <laughs> and putting something on the floor that might not pass or cause extra embarrassment, Speaker McCarthy, I don't think, would do that. But he should be honest with the president and say, hey, I'm not sure I can pass it. Well, and part of the reason it may not pass is it, it may not be constitutional. I mean, Jonathan Turley, who is, you know, one of Trump's favorite attorneys and law professors said, it's not like a constitutional DUI. Once you are impeached, you're impeached. I yeah. mean, it's not even it's not even clear that you could actually do this. No, it, it's not. It's, and also, uh, you know, poor Kevin McCarthy. I mean, it's like the, the incredibly, uh, the incredible shrinking speaker. I mean, he's got to go and beg and cry and apologize for saying something that everybody knows. It may, in fact, be true that Trump's not the strongest guy in a general election. He says a true statement has to go and apologize and then slips on a banana peel and now he has to walk back whether or not he's promising to do something he can't do. This is, I'm sorry, we've got real stuff happening in America. We've got, you know, fires and floods and all kinds of stuff happening. There's real issues and the Speaker of the House has to deal with stuff like this. Uh, I remember when he was a serious guy. Well, let me, let me just say in his defense, mm -hmm. I think he has uh, overperformed what a lot of expectations were for him. You know, after the way he got the speakership, a lot of people were predicting his demise on this issue or that issue. And time and again, he has delivered on things when people didn't think he could. So overall, I actually think he's had a very successful run of it. I think this is an unfortunate episode. And hopefully they don't put this on the floor and they just choose to do other policy that would be uh, important to voters. I want to ask you about something else that happened today, which is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, was in an interview and was asked about his view of Senator Tuberville's hold on those military nominations. This is what he said. Do you think Senator Tuberville should remove those holds on the career chain of command? Because it's really screwing things up. But the re no, I don't. And the reason is, is what the military's policy is, is not following U.S. law. They are fu using tax dollars. They are funding abortion tourism, which is not an appropriate thing uh, for the military to be doing. So I think our rep Republicans in, in the Congress should just take a stand on this. It's Iowa robust for Ron DeSantis, and that is exactly what a caucus goer in Iowa, a lot of them would want to hear, uh, that he's going to stand up for pro-life policies. Uh, they don't really see or feel that this might actually be screwing up military readiness, but they feel the issue, the pro-life issues viscerally. It's one of the reasons they are Republicans, and so I think for Ron DeSantis, uh, he's, everything he's doing right now is about Iowa, because if you get close to Trump or somehow beat him in Iowa, it's game on. If you get beat out there, and if Donald Trump wins it going away, race could be over. And I should note, by abortion tourism, which was the phrase he used, that means the Pentagon is paying for service members who live in a state where you can't get access to an abortion to, to go out of state. We did hear from Senator Tuberville himself, though, today. He is once again still blocking these. He had an opportunity this week to, to stop, and he said he was standing by it. He said he is essentially doing this to stop the Biden administration from doing this. Somebody's telling them no, and they can't handle it. They're going, what do you mean we can't do this? You got to give us our candy. We got to continue on turning this country into socialism. That's not going to happen. Uh, yeah, that's not rational statement. First of all, he better hope nothing bad happens. He better hope nothing bad happens. He, never, he better hope that all of this nonsense he's doing 
doesn't put America at risk, doesn't put our soldiers at risk. You've got some, a place called North Korea that's got weapons. You've got Iran with drones. You've got a lot of stuff that's going on. And this stuff does have a big impact. And those of us who've served in the federal government, he took an oath, same oath I took, same oath those soldiers took, to de- protect the constitution of the country, uh, to defend us against uh, enemies, foreign and domestic. There are enemies out there, and we're not focused on them because he wants to play a, a politics around abortion. Uh, he just better hope nothing bad happens, because if something does happen, it's going to be on him. Van Jones, Scott Jennings, thank you both. Thank you. Ahead, two migrants who were pregnant were at a Texas shelter and now have disturbing allegations, saying the National Guard did not give them water as they were trying to turn themselves in to the immigration authorities. This comes as some troopers are flagging what they say is inhumane treatment at the border. We have a full report next. Tonight, two pregnant women tell CNN that the Texas National Guard would not give them water as they were trying to turn themselves in at the U.S.-Mexico border. A woman said she was six months pregnant and was turned away repeatedly. This is just the latest in allegations that migrants are being treated inhumanely at the southern border. A report out this week includes a claim that troopers there were order, had orders to push migrants back into the Rio Grande River despite the obvious risk of drowning. Two border medics saying that they witnessed a four-year-old girl who passed out in the 100-degree heat and a 19-year-old woman trapped in razor wire having a miscarriage. I do want to warn you now, these images are incredibly difficult to look at, but these are the injuries, a direct result of that razor wire that's along the border, according to a Texas DPS report. We know that the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has added additional razor wire along the border. The Justice Department says tonight it's assessing the situation, but has not yet opened any kind of formal investigation. My colleague Shimon Prokupes joins me now. Shimon, I mean, the examples that we cited there, the pictures that we just were showing the viewers, I mean, that's just a few of, of these allegations that were being Right, told that's about. just a few. I know that there are more because I've been talking to sources in Texas from the Department of Public Safety, and there are several more complaints filed by officers, state troopers who are working the border following the Greg Abbott policy, the governor's policy, following the Texas Department of Public Safety policy in the apprehension of these migrants. And what they're saying is that what they're doing is inhumane in the way that they're treating these migrants. And one of the issues is, you know, you talk about this razor wiring, but what they have done is the way they have placed it, according to these allegations from these troopers, is that they're making the migrants go to the deeper end of the water. So in the shallow end, you have all the razor wiring, but the migrants have figured out if they go to the deeper end, they may be able to get around it. And what's happening on the deeper end is they're drowning. I mean, this one state trooper wrote about how there were five deaths just in that one weekend that he was there, and most of them as a result of drownings. Kids, babies, mothers carrying their kids over and are dying in this water. And he also describes how they come across a large group of people, some 120 people, and basically what the troopers are told to do and the National Guard, push them back in the water, force them back in the water, make them go back to Mexico. And these people have spent, you know, enormous amount of time getting there. So they're tired. They wanted water. They weren't given water, according to this trooper. Uh, you know, the Department of Public Safety is denying a lot of these allegations. Say they don't have a directive where, uh, you know, not to give water or anything like that. But that's not what I'm hearing from troopers who are in meetings, who are being briefed and told what to do. And they're saying that they are being told that. They are being told not to give water. Don't do anything to help the migrants, they're complaining about optics and they don't want to make it seem like they're helping them. They want to make it as difficult as possible for the migrants 
when they're trying to cross. And I imagine the governor, Greg Abbott, is saying similar? Well, what he's saying, right, that there is no policy, you know, against giving water and that every, there's no policy in, in any way that's going to compromise people's lives. And he's, you know, just saying, look, we have to protect the border. We're going to do what we have to do. You know, he's doubling down. They're doing these buoys and people are complaining about these buoys uh, and, and the effects that that can have on the migrants who are trying to cross over. Which is drowning. What? There are these big orange things that are the barriers. You see it there in the video uh, that are supposed to somehow protect or stop the migrants from entering land. Look, other people have looked at this and said it's a problem and it's not something that they should be doing because people could drown trying to get around it, trying to get under it. Um, and all of this is happening while when you look at the numbers from the Border Patrol, they're down drastically in terms of people trying to cross since the new Title 42 policy. I mean, we haven't, the decrease is so significant. It's been the largest decrease since 2021. So this has a lot of people asking questions like, why is the governor in Texas taking such an aggressive approach? And the answer really, I mean, when you talk to most people in Texas, it's politics, right? This is an issue for the Republicans that it's an important issue, the borders. And so they feel a lot of it is just politics. Yeah. And those immigration numbers are way down compared to what we expected with Title 42. Shimon Prokopez, I know you'll be reporting on this. Keep us updated. He vowed to live his life in a, quote, proper fashion after then-President Donald Trump commuted his prison sentence. But now a convicted con man has been charged yet again. Details ahead. Ellie Weinstein is a convicted Ponzi schemer who got out of prison early thanks to former President Trump, who commuted his 24-year sentence before he left office. Afterward, Weinstein vowed to make the most of his newfound freedom. My goal is to make everybody proud of me and to lead my life in the proper fashion. That was then. This is now. More than two years later, Weinstein has just been charged in a multi-million dollar fraud scheme. Prosecutors say that his crimes were brazen and sophisticated. He allegedly used a fake name to make false promises to investors about deals for baby formula, scarce COVID medical supplies, and first aid kits that he claimed were going to war zones in Ukraine. According to the prosecutors, it seems Weinstein, quote, picked up right where he left off. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night. Seen in primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.